Welcome to another episode of Days Gone By. This is Season 3, Episode 4, and I'm your host, Matt McBrayer. I'm pretty excited about this one today. I I like these uh, sermons from preachers of the past in particular, but um, I like this one uh, a whole lot because um, this was just really neat for me. You know, some of these guys that we have on here, um, I've heard some of these guys in person. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've had Gary Cauley. Uh, Gary Colley was one of my teachers. I got to sit at his feet. Uh, I'd heard him preach several times. And, uh, you know, I, I knew about him a little bit through his uh, son having heard uh, Glenn Colley preach before. And, and so there was some familiarity with him. And some of the other guys that you'll will have on this uh, on this show throughout time, uh, they're, they're, you know, I'm old enough, really, that I've heard some of these guys before in person. Uh, or at least heard of them and and, and seen them at, at different lectureships or whatever. But uh, anyway, this one is really neat because I have known of this man for a long time, uh, and I've actually gleaned from uh, some of his sermons before, but I had never heard any of his sermons, and that is N.B. Hardman. Of course, you know, when you think about N.B. Hardman, you think about something like the Tabernacle Sermons. I think that like just jumps out right at the, the forefront of my mind. And I've got all of those, and I've, I've read through uh, most of those. And, man, he's got some really good lessons in there. And I've preached some of those lessons uh, almost, um, uh, almost just like he's done. But... I had, you know, he's been so long in the past, there was no way of me ever having heard him. He was uh, dead long before I was born. And, you know, and then on top of that, um, he did not have very many recordings. And so when I came across this one, I was really excited. And the interesting thing is I had never heard his voice before. And so it was really interesting to uh, have read all these things and then finally hear his voice. And and uh, maybe uh, many of you uh, don't, uh, you know, haven't heard N.B. Hardman before. And so you're like me going, okay, this is, this is interesting. But um, the thing is, I've, I learned this through another preacher, a friend of mine, uh, when I told him that I came across this, he had actually heard the sermon before. And he had it as well, but he said um, that Brother Hardman did not like to be recorded. Evidently, uh, somebody around the time that he was preaching, because of you know um, you know recordings uh, being a little bit more public at that time, you know it used to be uh, more commercial, but it was starting to come you know into people's homes, and so the ability for congregations to record people was a little bit more prevalent. Uh, at the time than it had been. And so um, he didn't like being recorded because somebody uh, had taken a recording of somebody else and edited it uh, to where they were saying something that they did not, and he didn't want that to happen. And so, uh, you know, coincidentally then, you know, or consequently, um, we don't have very many recordings from M.B. Hardiman. And so that makes this one, I think, extra special. And so uh, enjoy this. You're listening to N.B. Hardman teach on repentance, another sermon from days gone by. I'm reading to you tonight from the 11th chapter of Matthew, coming from verse 20. After John had sent to the Christ to know whether or not he really be the Christ, and the answer was given, The record says this, From that time forth began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. And he said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works which were done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted on the heavens, should be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which are done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. It will be more tolerable, therefore, in the day of judgment for Sodom than for thee. I want tonight to talk about repentance as expressed in that short reading. And first of all, I want to take a survey through the Bible, or Testament, to see just what is said regarding it. After announcement of the birth of Christ in Matthew 2, the record says this with the next chapter beginning. In those days, that is, in the days of the Herods and of the Caesars, in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying to the people, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The chief theme of John the Baptist's preaching was centered upon the idea of repentance. And his clarion voice broke the silence of the wilderness by calling upon the people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And after John was put in prison, Christ began to preach as recorded in Matthew 4, and he announced also, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you continue throughout the Bible, and we come to Mark's statement. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He preached a baptism belonging to repentance, growing out of it, and preceded by it. And no man can be scripturally baptized that has not first repented of his sins. Then Luke's account of it suggests, I tell you nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And in giving the commission, Luke said, Thus it is written, and thus it will the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, by the way, and that commission was executed, people were cut to their heart by the preaching of the great apostle Peter. And so cut were they that they cried out, wanting to do something about it. And they said to Peter and the others, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Why, the first thing he said to those who had believed what he preached and thus been cut to the heart by it, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then in the second sermon preached by Peter, Acts the third chapter, after he had told them of the crucifixion of Christ and the tragedy of Calvary and his resurrection, why he called upon the people and said, Repent therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So throughout the Bible that far, repentance is emphasized, and it continues. 
When Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he took with him six Jewish brethren to testify in his behalf as to the conduct he had. And by and by he spake unto the people, and the Lord poured out the Spirit upon them. And these six Jewish brethren were then believers in the fact that God has no respecter of persons. And they said, Truly hath God granted unto the Gentiles repentance unto life. Well, continue throughout the Bible, and you'll have the same run of affairs. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why, it wouldn't do, of course, for any man that has any regard for the Bible to suggest that repentance is an unnecessary act on the part of those who would do God's will. Except we repent of our wrongs, there's no hope for us. And yet you find so little of it manifested in these modern times. Now just when have you heard a man make a public confession of his wrong and say, I repent before God and before you, brethren, and pray him to forgive him? That's a rare affair. And it would indicate that all brethren are living perfect lives. They never make restoration or repent of their wrongs or seemingly anything of the kind. I knew a very wealthy man in Tennessee, was a member of the church and a good one, but he would slip during the week and say and do things that he ought not. Every Sunday morning it was a part of the program for Brother Anderson of Hurricane Mills, Tennessee, to get up before the audience and confess his wrongs and pray God to forgive him. Well, he did that for quite a while, and one day he arose one Sunday morning and made the confession, and he said, Brethren, is it possible that I'm the only man in this congregation that ever sins and ought to confess his wrong? And he put the others to shame by their not doing a thing of that kind as they should. <clears throat> well, now we come to the point to ask just what repentance is. And I have an idea that so many people misapprehend it, in the 20th chapter of Matthew, we have this story. A certain man had two sons, and he said to the first, Son, go work in my vineyard today. He said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. Now, what did he do? At first, he told the father, I will not. And the father couldn't misunderstand that. It was a plain, positive statement. I will not go and work in the vineyard. But he repented and went. Now just what act was performed. If you know what that boy did and what was wrought in his mind, you'll get an idea of what repentance is. <clears throat> but to the second son, he said, go work in my vineyard. And that son said, I, I will. But he didn't. And hence the two contrasted. Now from that you can't help but see, neither can I, that repentance is a change of a man's willpower. At first he determined not to do it. But thinking about it after having announced it, he turned and repented of what he had done and carried that repentance into effect by doing what the Father had suggested. 
I want to say to you, friends, if there's any part of our nature that's akin to the proverbial mule, it's that element of our being that has to do with repenting. The human family or the humankind is said to be divided into three parts. An intellect, the power to know. A will, the power to act. And a sympathetic or emotional side of our nature, the power to feel. Now, it's not much trouble to get a man to see the thing, and he'll admit it. And he'd rejoice over the feeling of it. But you have attacked his willpower when you give a commandment, and their stubbornness comes in, and he will not. That's why Christ said to the people of Bethsaida and Covernium, <coughs> Why, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for thee. I want you to picture those cities as they are on the map. Coration and Bethsaida are at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And directly west on the Mediterranean coast, there's old Tyre and Sidon, cities that flourished back in the days of Solomon, and hence a thousand years before Christ. Well, here are Coration and Bethsaida, cities that saw him walk their streets and talk to the people in that town. Now, Christ said it will be more tolerable for those old cities back yonder that never heard me, that it will for thee. Now why? Simply because we are responsible and accountable according to our opportunities and to the privileges that we have. Then he turned to his home city, Capernaum, where he would live, and said, Thou, Capernaum, art exalted unto him. Well, I've had the pleasure of being at Capernaum. Why, it's no higher from the level of the water than other cities round about. I'd suggest not over four or five feet at the outside. And yet he said it's exalted unto heaven. Now, not physically. It's not located on a mountain, but on the slope of the sea coast. But exalted in privileges, in opportunities, in advantages. Why, Jesus Christ himself lived among them. They heard his voice and his footfalls as he walked among their halls and speak to the people. They're exalted in that the fine opportunities are theirs, and they'll be brought down to hell. Well, why? Because they wouldn't repent. And he goes away back to the days of Abraham, said it's more tolerable for old Sodom than it will be for his hometown. Well, why that? Well, because the Sodomites never heard Christ. He wasn't born for 4,000 years, almost after that time. And it'd be more tolerable. <clears throat> now, I want to make this suggestion based upon that. It would be better for you and me to come up into the darkest region of Hottentots of Africa and face the judgment bar of God than to go from this section of the country without having repented of our wrongs. It'd be more tolerable for those who've never known about it than it will for us who have Bibles and preaching and opportunity, and yet harden our hearts and will not repent. Why, of course the Bible teaches us that. Well, <clears throat> the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment and condemn this generation. Now, Nineveh was a city that thrived about 600 years before Christ. 
to that city, a command came to old Jonah. And God bade him to go and preach unto Nineveh yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, Christ said that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment and condemn this generation. Well, why? Because the Ninevites repented. Well, I want to find out what they did. The Bible says they repented. Well, what do you do when you repent? Now turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3 and verse 10, and here's the story of it. When God looked upon them and saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, he did not that unto them which he had declared. So what is repentance? It's turning from the wrong to the right and from the opposition to that imperfect cooperation with God's will. Hence repentance. Let's frame a definition for it then based upon these. And I'd put it after this fashion. Repentance is a change of a man's willpower brought about by godly sorrow and resulting in a reformation of life. I think that covers it. The first and the last part. Unless therefore those elements be characteristic of it, you have a reason and right to doubt whether or not that man has repented. Well, go along down the line. God wants all men to repent. Paul stood on Mars Hill and said, at the time of this ignorance on your part, God winked at it or passed it by. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Can I get to heaven and willfully disobey God's command? Well, certainly not. If, uh, if I could, we just well throw away the Bible and recognize that all of us will be saved or all of us will be lost, one or the other. When God commands a thing, that settles it. Why, God commands people to believe on the Lord. And there's no hope for the man that does not. And I never heard a man in my life, a preacher of the deepest die, ever suggest why to believe on the Lord, faith is just, just a command. You ever hear anything like that? And when we're called upon to repent, some fellows say, well, you don't have to do it. That's just a command. You don't have to obey it. Men don't talk that way about faith and repentance. But there's another command just along with those given to the same people at the same time and by the same character. And when God commands people to be baptized, for instance, some little upspurt will arise and say, that's just a command. That's all. You don't have to do it. <clears throat> I'd like to illustrate, if it were in order, when you parents tell your boys 12 to 14 and 15 years of age and give them a command, do they obey it or not? Too many of the knots in the country along that line. Well, if you command your son to do a thing, he said, oh, that's just a command, why you don't have to do it. Dad's just talking through his hat. Now, wouldn't that be ridiculous? And I'd say, poor boy, came up without a daddy, just a fellow that had that wore pants, that's all. And he isn't fit to be a father of any child whatsoever. Did you mothers ever suggest your daughters, now daughter, do this? And she turns up and old walks away and pays no attention to you, whatever. And you stand back and wonder and shed tears of regret over my wayward daughter. 
Well, you know what ought to have happened? Both of them needed to be taken to the woodshed and make them understand that authority rests in father and mother. But we've almost lost that conception of affairs. Just think about it. Hence, when God commands men everywhere to repent, it's not a matter to be turned aside as if it were worthless in its announcement. Well, the next thing. You know, we never do anything, but there are motives and elements characteristic of us. And I used to debate in school with other boys time and again this old proposition, namely, which is the greater incentive to action, the fear of punishment or the hope of reward? And this fine argument on each side, I've debated both sides back in school days. <clears throat> now, which do you think about it? There's the fear of punishment on one hand, there's the hope of reward on the other. Well, I don't know which one is the more important, nor which one should come first. Just like whether or not the egg was first produced and then the hen, or the hen first and the egg second. And I can argue why you can't have a hen unless there's an egg from which is hatched, and then you can't have an egg lest there's an old hen to lay it. <clears throat> and so you go round and round. Well, I know how that was. The hen came first, of course. Now then, <clears throat> what makes a man leave Sumner County sometimes and move out to Arizona or to southwestern Texas? Well, there's certainly some reason for it. And what are they? Well, there's the fear that if I stay in this rather damp country, that asthma or tuberculosis will increase, I'll suffer as a result, and be brought down to a premature death. On the other hand, there's the hope of reward in the fresh air and the dryness of those countries and the elements that are favorable toward my recovery. Now, acting between the two, he sells out here because of a fear that his life will be taken out sooner and hope out yonder moves him to come forward, and thus we make the transition. Why, some people are so thoughtless that they want to move from Tennessee and go to Arkansas. Well, now why? Oh, I think it's better over there, finer land and better country, and I want to make some money, and thus prompted by those two elements, all of our activities are done. The fear of punishment on the one hand, the hope of reward on the other. Now, have you ever stopped to think why it is that the Bible just abounds from first to last in stories of God's wrath having been visited out upon sinful man? When the great avalanche of God's displeasure is poured out upon mankind, what is it all for? Well, Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those tragic scenes that beset life's pathway are for the purpose and intent of warning you and me of the dangers that lurk along the way. My friends, a matter of fact, the pathway of mankind from Grandfather Adam on down the line 
is literally strewn with the bleaching bones of those that have fallen by the wayside, testifying to passers-by that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. All of that's there. And there's a purpose in the Bible and a place for just such to impress me and you that I'd better go forward and turn to God Almighty. And then when you take the other side of it, why there are the great and exceeding precious promises found in the Bible. Some man has said there are about 300 of them. I never did stop to count, but I know the numbers of them. Now, why does a man do a certain thing? Not only because of the fear if he fails, but the hope of reward if he does. And thus we have it. Repent and be baptized. Why? Why with the hope that your sins may be forgiven. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What's the promise? Salvation. Based upon the condition. Now so far as I know, there's not a promise in God's book, but it's conditional in its pronouncement. Such a thing is absolute and a guarantee regardless of man's part in the great program is unknown. There are two parties in the plan of salvation. God's will to provide. Man's will to appropriate that blessing by turning from the darkness to light. Oh, someone said salvation is free. Well, the Bible teaches that, I think. And it, like the colored preacher, he said it costs something to pump it to you, by the way. Just like water is free, abounding all round about us, but it costs money to get it to us, and they're conditioned in it. Do you know what I could do? Lie down here on the carpet and close my eyes and ears and every avenue of my being, put a coat of shellac on my body and stop the pores, and in the midst of a great cyclone or hurricane or an abundance of air, I could lie there and drown for want of atmosphere. For someone said, isn't God willing to give it to you? Yes, sir, it abounds everywhere. And I rejoice that it's free. And man hasn't yet learned how to corner on it. If he could, he would. If some fellow ever gets up a device, they'll put a meter in our nose and every month come around and read it and charge it up with the amount of air that we breathe. Just like the new water. Well, a man can lie down with his nose and mouth in one inch of a clear crystal Middle Tennessee spring bubbling forth from the solid rock. He can lie there and perish. Why? Well, because he won't exercise the power that he has and drink. Someone said, if God wants me to have it, he'll give it to me. And there are people possibly that think the Lord has a squirt gun and will put it to them anyhow. Or a hose to turn on. Why, God provides me with nostrils and a pair of lungs to inhale and exhale the atmosphere. Unless I do it, death follows. God provides me with the ability to take water into my system, which is natural. And unless I do that, I die of thirst. Now, God has provided salvation based upon our turning from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. Unless I do that and turn away, repent of my wrongs, why well, have no shadow of a promise? 
under the helms itself. Well, note the two incentives that we have in the Bible directly. In 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, Paul said, I wrote you a letter, and I regret that I did, but I rejoice that it led to something worthwhile. I rejoice not because you sorrowed, but because you sorrowed unto repentance. Now get the verse. For godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. Now, what is the place of godly sorrow in the act of repentance? Well, it lies back of repentance. It's that which prompts a man to go forward. He thinks of his ungodly life, of the failure to do his duty, and there's a sorrow of a godly sort that comes upon him, and then that thing works in him and pushes him forward and said, go ahead and repent. Well, that's the thing that's back of him. Now, Paul said in Romans 2 and 4, don't you know that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? See those two elements. There's godless sorrow in behind, driving and urging. There's God's goodness that's manifested in a thousand ways, inviting and begging the sinner to come. And that act now of transition from the godless sorrow unto the change of life, accepting God's goodness, that's the Bible idea of repentance. <clears throat> so all men everywhere must repent of their sins or else. I tell you nay, said the Christ, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Why, it's a part of every preacher's business, and it ought to be to go over the country trying to get men to repent of their wrongs. But instead of that, I'm persuaded to think that so many times now, we wink at sin, and vile acts of humanity are galvanized into respectability. Men and women do things that they would not have done years ago under the preaching that sounded forth then. But very largely, brethren, we have quit preaching on these fundamentals, obedience to which brings our hope of everlasting life. Why, it's not out of order now for church members to drink liquor. They'll do that when they get together. It's not out of order for them to engage in various affairs that are of questionable proprietors, say the least of it. It's not amiss, by the way, to see them and to hear them use profanity and then a Sunday morning come and be solemn and sacred and partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, that's common as can be. And it's disgusting. And I know men and can tell you the names that will cuss like a sailor from Monday morning until Saturday night. And then on Sunday, they'll drop their chin with a long face and pass the emblems under the other cussers in the audience. Isn't that ridiculous? Why, it's no wonder to me that people stand on the outside and poke fun at the church. I don't criticize them. And say, well, the church members do things I wouldn't. I know that's so. Lots of them do. And both you and I know men that make no pretense whatsoever. But so far as morality is concerned, their lives are much cleaner and freer from condemnation than some of ours. All of that is the lack of a recognition of the importance of repentance toward God 
and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, think of another act. <clears throat> Just how long does it take a man to repent of his sins? And that seems rather silly to ask a thing of that kind, but if you've lived as long as I have, you'll appreciate some things of the past. It used to be customary in the country where I live that just as soon as crops were laid by, about the 1st or 4th of July, the big meeting started. Wheat had been threshed, we had plenty of straw, and so they come in. And I can call the names of men right now that the first meeting they went to the mourner's bench and prayed wonderfully unto God, begging him that they might repent of their sins. That meeting went on for eight or ten days, closed out, and another one started over here in another direction. The same fellow went there, and he was a mourner at that meeting. And then the third, and so on, and I've known them to go through the entire summer, and not only that, but for ten or fifteen years, begging and pleading that they might repent of their wrongs, and God wouldn't pay any attention to them. Disappointed. Now, do you know of anything like that in the Bible? Well, of course not. On the great day of Pentecost, how many souls repented? About 3,000 of them. How long did it take them to do it? Just long enough to get the consent of their minds. I'm going to turn to follow the Lord. And that was sufficient in that case. <clears throat> Things have changed up wonderfully. And my brethren are responsible largely for some of the good things that have come to pass. You don't hear anymore about the old-time mourner's bench when men sat and mourned over their sorrowful state. Now that thing's gone back to the sawmill where they got it. Well, who's responsible for that? Gospel preachers are. They've condemned it, exposed it, and challenged anyone to find anything that looked like a distant relative to such a practice until they've quit that. Why, when I was much younger than I now am, it is just as common as could be for people to get religion occasionally in the big meeting, rise up and shout glory to God in the highest, and have a high old time and work at it until 11 or 12 o'clock at night when there wasn't a dry thread on them, and then say, thank God it's not of works, least any man should boast. I've been working at it since sundown. <clears throat> well, that was characteristic of the time. Well, all of that's gone, and they've swung to the extreme. Instead of having a hard time of it, and having to sorrow over there, oh, that wonderful state, now what? Well, the Billy Graham method is on now with others. You don't have to do anything of that kind. Just sit where you are, way back yonder. Arise, if you will, and come down and pass into the anteroom for further instruction. Or, there's a little piece of paper with a baby blue ribbon tied with a pen to the pencil. Just sign your name on the dotted line and we'll enroll you as a church member. That's the other extreme of the thing. When, of course, the Bible knows nothing about any of such stuff from start to finish. But Christianity is a sensible affair. <coughs> when men may hear the truth, when they may believe it, when they may genuinely and truly repent of their wrongs, and if they genuinely repent, 
why the next step is easy. Someone said, I just hate to be baptized. Well, you don't need baptism. That's not the thing needed. What a man needs that's in a condition of that kind and hesitate, he needs faith and a determination to obey the Lord. And when he gets that in his mind and that consent, why the baptizing part of it is just simple as can be. And so I bid you think along that line. Repentance toward God of all of our wrongs, being sorry for our sins, expressing that sorrow in the fact that we turn away. <clears throat> now a person can be ever so sorry for a thing and not repent a lick in the world. A man, for instance, may go to town, get some liquor, and get on a bender, which means a protracted drunken spell. And there he spend every dollar that he had, his wife and children back home suffering maybe for something to eat, and he'll have a high old time and pass out, so to speak, and become unconscious. Well, he sobers up in two or three days and said, I'm repentant of all of it. I'm so sorry. And puts his arm around his wife and said to her, I'll never do it again. I'm regretted all of my days. But in less than a week, he gets with the same environment and he, he goes and gets drunk again. Now question. Did that man repent of his wrong? No. Repentance results in a reformation of life. But he's the same old fellow. Regardless of what the preacher may say about him in his turning to the Lord. Unless I repent of my wrongs and demonstrate that by quitting the thing that I repented of and passing it by, there's no repentance about it. <clears throat> And I wouldn't do that, but for the fact that people expect it, and out of regard for them, I do it. Just like the criminal goes ahead and commits atrocious deeds and outlandish acts, and is caught and put in the penitentiary, then he gets wonderfully sorry. I have visited them out in our own state penitentiary, and have preached to them out there. And why are they now so sorry and so regretful? Why, not because they did the act, but because they caught up with me. And here I am. <clears throat> Let him out, and he'll do the same thing again. That's not repentance of the Bible sort at all. So tonight, without prolonging the service, I'm just appealing to those of you who have not, that you exercise faith in God's word. Accept the testimony therein given from which comes faith in the Lord, that you resolve by God's grace, whatever my wrong has been and my sin has been, that I repent of. Now, there's just lots of people that don't have so much to repent of, and they have confidence in the Lord. Why ask, do you believe in Christ with all of your heart? Yes, sir, I do. Well, are you guilty of any heinous act? Or atrocious deed? No, sir. I try to live an upright moral life. Now, what's his conclusion? I don't need anything further. And from his point of view, he doesn't. But he needs to obey God regardless. And he doesn't have to repent of as much as the vile sinner and the one that is so active in the realm of Satan. 
So tonight there may be good fellows. They are in every community, fine citizens, and yet they're not Christians. They're deceived by thinking that all will be well with them. But they ought to remember, Christ said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them up and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it be in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. Why, you go out into the orchard, for instance, and pick out the finest limb or branch on the most fruit-bearing tree found therein, and that branch is all right. Now, cut it all next to the trunk. And I don't care what you do for it. It's finished. There'll be no more fruit. And it represents a fine moral man, clean, from worldly point of view. And then there's still attached to the vine some branch that's not so prominent. And this is it. I'm better than you are. No, you are not. By a thousand miles. There's hope for that one as long as it stays in the vine. But none for the fellow that's detached and aloof from the vine which is Christ our Lord. Tonight, once you rise in the strength of Israel's God and your manhood and womanhood and just resolve by God's grace, no longer will I delay, but I'll walk down the aisle and sanctify my lips in confessing the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll go forward and be buried with him. I'll arise to walk a new life with the emptied grave behind me and the resurrection mind to share. If there be such an one, the invitation is gladly attended once again while together we stand, please. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Days Gone By podcast on the Scattered Broad Network, brought to you by Ironworks. You can learn more about us at scatteredabroad.org and coming soon to ironworkspress.org or look up either work on Facebook. We look forward to studying with you again soon.